Anybody in here? Who here is trying to eat really healthy right now? A few of us. <laughs> who, uh, who are on the other side where it's like it's 2020, carbs are amazing, I just don't care anymore, I'm riding out this year. Okay, that's a few of us as well. Um, you know, January hits, and just like many of you, I kind of look at the scales, and I'm like, okay, this is the year. This is the year. I'm going to get healthy. And so one year, I remember uh, Katie and I did like a three-week, uh, we said we're going to kick it off with like a cleanse, and we're just going to do fruits and vegetables and no carbs at all except for, you know, like the healthy fruit carbs. And, and then we circled a date on the calendar. It was like January 22nd. It was a Saturday that we said that'll be when we kind of have like our date night and we'll do like a cheat meal and celebrate that we went through three weeks of this. Um, so, you know, it, it was hard at first, but then we're going through it and we're in the rhythm. And then like the week of the cheat day comes and I start to dream about the food that I'm going to eat on this cheat day. And, and like every time we talk, we'd see like a commercial for pizza and we're like, add that to the list of what we're going to eat on Saturday. And the list just kind of grows and grows. And it came to the day before and I was like so strongly craving carbs that I actually drove to a restaurant and picked up, they had um, my favorite dessert, peanut butter pie, and I picked up a slice of it, and I brought it to my fridge, and it just sat there ready for me on cheat day. And I woke up that morning, and I ate it for breakfast. That's, that's how strong. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, and the, the cravings were so strong that I could not resist uh, the amazing pull of sugar on my life. I recognize I'm addicted to it. That's okay, because I'm open about it. Uh, but what, what we often crave is not ultimately what's best for us, right? Like the things that we crave, that our bodies crave, that our minds crave, that our hearts crave, often are not actually what's healthiest and best for us. And, and what we're talking about today, as we're wrapping up this, this teaching series today, um, are those cravings. Because what we do um, is, is we seek out what's best in the moment, even though if that's not what's best in the long term. Like I've never woken up after eating five slices of pizza and said, man, I'm really glad I did that. That was a good decision and I feel wonderful today, right? Because we feel awful, we feel sluggish, but that's what we do, right? That's our human nature, uh, not to just make excuses for it, but that's, that's just ingrained in, in who we are. Uh, and today as we're wrapping up our teaching series Insomnia, we're looking at the different areas in your life where you're just craving more right now. And I'm not talking about carbs. I'm saying where in your life are you craving change? Do you want something to change? Where That area of discontentment, which if you just paused for a few moments, it probably would not take long for you to think of what that area is. That every single one of us has something in our life that we either want more of, that we want to change, that's just unsettled, right? And, and, and that's the thing that we, I think we tell ourselves, if we had this, if God gave us this, we'd be happy. We'd be content. Is it more money, more influence, more power? Maybe it's more freedom in the job that you're in. Like you just have more flexibility in your schedule. You have more freedom to make decisions. Maybe it's more square footage on your home, more friends, more wives. I'm just kidding. Uh, maybe you want a bigger family. Maybe you've been praying for more kids. Maybe you want to give your kids away. I don't know what it is, right? We all have different things that, that we're craving in our lives. And it, I just want you to take a moment before we jump into this to, to ask like your mind, like, what is that for you? What is the thing that you're most discontent with 
right now? Because let's keep that on the forefront of our mind as we jump into this. I, I kind of took a moment as I was you know, thinking through what we were going to talk about today, and I, I kind of jumped back a few years, and I said, okay, what would that have been three years ago and then two years ago? So three years ago, um, we had not launched this church location yet, and we were praying about a space that we could begin to gather in. And we were looking all over, and we were, like, there's not a lot of retail space that had the square footage we needed. So we actually got to the point where we were, like, knocking on doors of businesses that weren't even selling. And we said, hey, would you let us stay? And they'd, like, leave us alone. Don't ever come here again. And so it was, like, a long pursuit of until, until God finally opened the door for us to be here. But that was what I was most discontent with, is I just felt unsettled because I was like, God, I know you're calling us to do this, but we don't have a home yet. We don't know where we're going to be. So that was my big prayer request, and God answered that prayer. Then, but, but it needed to be renovated because it, it was a mess, and it was completely gutted, and there were wires hanging from the ceiling. So two years ago, my big discontentment was we still don't have a home. Like, we have an address, but we don't have a home yet. And, and because of the work of many of you um, in this room, coming late, um, coming after work, giving up your Saturdays, renovating the space, we have what it is today. But at the time, we were still, we were meeting in a school, and we were, we were waiting for that. And then a year ago, you know, uh, we had the space, and we'd begun meeting, and God just grew this thing to where many of you um, have found a, a, a spiritual church home. And a year ago, I would have said, God, there's so much going on. There's so many needs. Will you just slow things down? And then this year, I feel like my discontentment is like the opposite of that, where God, I just want to see some things kick back up. I want us to feel, uh, you know, I, I want this, this virus to, to, you know, there to be a vaccine. I want things to go away. We know that there, there's a lot of this that, that won't just fully go away, right? It's not like we just want to go back to normal. We know that we're, we're in kind of a new season of culture now, but there's a big part of me that I, I want to be able to experience the things that I was praying would slow down six months ago, a year ago. And, and what that shows me is whatever I'm discontent with, even when God answers it, I'm going to find something else, right? Like the things that you were discontent with a year ago, two years ago, um, probably aren't the same things you're discontent with now, but in human nature, you found something else to move on to. Uh, and, and so I think the question we need to battle with is, how can I find satisfaction right now, even if nothing changes? Even if nothing changes in my life? Like, what if we could get to a place that we're not dependent on things having to change for us to feel satisfied, because that's ultimately what this conversation is about, is where we find our satisfaction. And I just want to look at a few passages where the Bible responds to this topic, because this is a human nature thing. And Ecclesiastes chapter 2, which I've mentioned before, is one of my favorite books of the entire Bible. It's written by a guy named King Solomon, who God gave um, an abundance of wisdom and an abundance of wealth. And he kind of let him lead his life with both of those things, so that we could learn from his life. What, what, what does it look like for a guy to live with um, more wisdom than we'll ever have and more wealth than we'll ever have? Because we seek to have those things. And then Ecclesiastes is basically his end-of-life autobiography where he says, okay, here's what I learned. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he says this. I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. And so what Solomon is about to do is unpack 
how his pursuit for endless pleasure actually left him feeling meaningless. And, and what you're about to hear is a warning cry from Solomon because he's done all of the things that we strive for. And he's, it's like he's been to the end of the trail and he's turned around and he says, hey, it's not worth the hike. Because where, where you're striving to be, I've been, and it's not what you think. And it's kind of like if you've ever been to a place that you had a different expectation of what it would be like and it totally let you down. And so you kind of feel compelled to tell other people about it. That's how I felt the first time I went to Plymouth Rock, by the way. You guys all know exactly what I'm talking about. So I grew up in Tennessee. So I remember hearing about Plymouth Rock in the history books. So I have this picture of it being like this jagged mountain that you hike to the top of, and you can just see like beautiful, like you can see the sea for miles and miles, and you can turn around and you can see all of New England, and it's like this gorgeous, and there's like this statue. It's like, here is Plymouth Rock. That's what, that's what my picture of it was. And then you go, and it's like someone just dumped a rock in a cage, and there's a crack in it, and it's like the place where teenagers at night, like, they pee on it because it's like, oh, Plymouth Rock. Like, nobody takes care of this thing. Like, the last time I was there, there was like McDonald's wrappers next to it. It's like totally disappointing, right? I've never met somebody who's like, Plymouth Rock exceeded my expectations, <laughs> right? That doesn't happen. But I have friends that will come and visit us, and they'll come to New England and never been. And like on their list of things to do, they're like, well, we definitely want to see Plymouth Rock. <laughs> and we laugh because we're like, you don't. Unless, in, if, you're, if you happen to be walking by, it's worth turning your head and then continuing to walk. That's about the commitment that it's worth. But don't drive out there. Like, I know there are people that will fly in, and they have, like, excursions from Boston Logan where they take you on a shuttle. To, I don't know what they do once they get down there. Are they there for two minutes, and then they get back on, they go back? I don't know. But it's one of those things where you've been, and, and you've seen it, so now you want to tell people, hey, it's, it's not what you think. I've seen it. It's kind of cool, but if you go on Google image, it's the same experience. Like, you get a picture of it. That's what Solomon is doing here, is he's saying, he's saying, I have done what you strive to do. It's not what you think. Verse 2 and 3. So I said, laughter is silly. What good does it do to seek pleasure? He's kind of got this, like, Eeyore kind of personality. He's like, what's the point, right? After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine some of you can resonate with that. And while still seeking wisdom, I clinched at foolishness. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness that most people find during their brief life in this world. And then I'm going to skim over some of this because he just unpacks all the things that we dream of doing. He built buildings, he built parks, he had these developments, you know, he, he led all these staff and he had all of, you know, the servants that he needed. He had silver and gold. And then he gets to verse 10 and he says, anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything that I worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. Now, before we unpack this, how many of us would say, yeah, but it'd be nice to just try that out for like six months, right? It's like, yeah, okay, Solomon, we get it, but that'd be kind of cool. I kind of want to do those things. I remember when I was a kid, my mom, uh, such a creative, wonderful mom, we, I, had, uh, I have two brothers, and she would do this thing called King for a Day, where every Friday, one of us was the king for the day, and we got to sit in the front seat. It was a big deal because we're all competitive boys, and we feel like we're more empowered that way. 
uh, and we got to choose what we were having for dinner, and we got to like choose like a special dessert. So it'd kind of be like your king for the day every day. Everything you want, you get. Like that's Solomon's life, and he shows us all the different things he went through in order to find contentment. Like that's why he did these things, was so that he could finally feel fulfilled. That's what he was searching for, was satisfaction. And he had this unique opportunity that if he wanted more, he'd just go and get it. Like he didn't have the tension that we have where it's, well, I need, I don't have the, the resources, or the, I don't have the money to get what I want. Or, or for a lot of us, it's a power thing. It's like, I don't have the freedom to just do whatever I want. Like I, I you know, I, I work at this job and my schedule's not my own. Solomon literally had endless freedom, endless power, endless resources. God allowed him to have anything he wanted in order to use him as an example of what happens if we do get it all. So Solomon lived the ultimate hedonist lifestyle, and hedonism is a philosophy that's kind of like the American dream. I think when we think of the American dream, it's kind of parallel with this. Hedonism is the idea of if it feels good, it is good. And, and the goal in hedonism, those who live, oh, which I think a lot of people live naturally without even real, like they wouldn't even classify themselves as that because they don't know this term. But the idea is the purpose in life is pleasure, is happiness. And if, if there's happiness in your life, you're living out your purpose, but you try to filter out all of the things that make you unhappy. And so where this breaks down is if you have conflict with someone or someone that disagrees with you, just filter them out because they don't bring you happiness. And we know that that doesn't lead to a healthy life, that naturally in every relationship, in every healthy relationship, there's conflict and there's tension. And actually the beauty in those moments is where we grow and where we grow closer together. But, but the other breakdown in this philosophy is the pursuit for more and for happiness, it never ends, right? Like you're never content. Because if, if the goal in life is just to pursue happiness, you never actually get to a place of fulfillment because you're always looking out at what is more. No matter what you have, there's always more. Because as long as your satisfaction comes from the stuff around you, you'll never be done. So it's no wonder why we struggle with discontentment so much. Because I think our default, without anybody telling us, I think our default is hedon hedonism. Like, I think our default in our lives is to fill our lives with all the good stuff and to just try to take out all the bad stuff. Now, that's natural, right? But what happens is we constantly wrestle with the desire for more. And contentment is something that is a choice. It's not something that comes naturally. And contentment is a choice of where we find our satisfaction because when we find our satisfaction in God's truth, we become content with what we have right now. And I think a lot of us, even those of us that are practicing our faith, wouldn't say we truly find our contentment in God's truth. I think that's where we wrestle. Like we want to say we do, but if we truly find contentment in the promises of God that he's good, that he loves you, that he's always going to take care of you, and you can just rest in that, then we wouldn't wrestle with this like the rest of the world does. But I think we wrestle with this. And it's not ignoring the fact that you still have desires for more. It's not ignoring the fact that there are things in your life that you want to change. Contentment is choosing instead to focus on the things that God has already given you and being completely gratified in them. You know, some studies show, actually there's multiple studies that show that up to 70% of lottery winners file for bankruptcy within five years of winning the lottery. Isn't that crazy? Like, because everybody who wins the lottery, they're at this place where like my finances, like 
That's one thing I don't have to worry about. My life is taken care of. But they don't know what to do with it. And and the greed and the pursuit for more, they burn through all the money, they make a bunch of purchases without thinking about how it's financially going to affect them three, four, five years where they still have to maintain all of those bills before. And we hear that and we're like, that's ridiculous. That's astronomical. But statistically, 70% of us would do the same thing because we don't know how to be content with what we already have. So even if the thing we're praying for is given to us, we'll burn right through it and we'll still want more. Like that's why this is a satisfaction conversation. This is about where our heart is, not where our stuff is. This is about not what's happening out there, but what's happening in here. And I think it's so important that we see the, the difference between those two. So, so go back to that area in your life that, that's the most discontent right now, that you so desperately want God to change. And we all have that, and that's normal. That will always be there. It's just a matter of how strong that is and how much it affects the rest of our lives. But think of that for just a moment. The issue is this. You can become so fixated on that one discontentment that it, it makes it hard to be content in any other area of your life. Have you found that to be true? Like sometimes, we fo- it's like a toothache where it's, it's the smallest part of your body, but if that tooth hurts, if, has anybody ever cracked a tooth or had a cavity or like that pain, even though the, if the rest of your body feels no pain, that one nerve is all you think about. So I cracked a tooth when I was in college and I tried going to a movie to get distracted from it, but I couldn't like laugh at the movie because I was just thinking about the pain. I like tried going out you know, and hanging out with friends and just trying to get my mind off it. But that one little pain, it like, it was like an override of the rest of my body. It didn't matter that the rest of my body was fine and it wasn't hurting. That one pain was more powerful. And that's what discontentment can be in our lives. It's if everything else in our lives is fine, but there's that one pain, that one discontentment, and we don't stop thinking about it, It doesn't matter about the other 90%. Because all we're thinking about is that. That's what drives our emotions and our feelings. That's what causes us to be frustrated. Even if everything else is taken care of, it's that one area, that one thing that, like, it, it just bugs us. And the more you focus on the things God has already given you, the easier it is to feel settled, to feel content. Because it's like you're setting a trigger to your mind to to appreciate what you already possess. I made the mistake about a year ago of starting to like bring random things home to my five-year-old daughter, Hazel, from work. And I just do it randomly. Like I'd pick up, it started with the fact that we had like a leftover bag of lollipops at the office for some reason. And so I'd just bring her one home every day. But then like once a week, I'd bring her just something small, like a little $2 toy or something. But what ended up happening is now she expects it every time. Even if I go to the store for like 12 minutes, she's like, Daddy, what did you bring me? I'm like, Hazel, we just went to Target and got you some random doll like last week. She's like, I know, but what would you bring me today? See, for Hazel, she's doing exactly what we do, where all she's thinking about is not what she already has, but what, what else are we going to get? What else do we get? What else did you bring me? And I think sometimes that becomes our prayer life to God. It's not, God, thank you for what you've given me. Dad, thank you for the doll that you bought me at Target last week. It's, what else am I going to get? What about this one? And, and here's what happens 
Solomon says this. Here's what happens when you just, when you just keep focusing on that toothache, on the thing you don't have yet. Verse 18, it says, I came to hate all my hard work here on earth, for I must leave to others everything I have earned, that one day people that you never met will own all your stuff. And who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish? Yet they'll control everything I've gained by my skill and my hard work under the sun. How meaningless. So I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. Hating things in your life, wanting to give up, questioning who you are. Some of you can resonate with that right now. Some of you are are finding yourself getting frustrated at people that you didn't get frustrated at a year ago or getting frustrated at situations that didn't used to frustrate you. But this discontentment has boiled up and and, and it's become so strong. And it, it does that because discontentment, it's like a poison that spreads and it starts small, but if, if we don't learn how to deal with it, and if we don't learn how to remedy it, then it grows, and it grows, and it grows, and it becomes the only thing we can think about. And for, for a lot of you right now, like, if people were to look at your life, they'd say, your life's great, but you're so zoned in on the one area that you want to change, and that poison has spread and affected all of your emotions, it spreads to all the different areas of your life, and it becomes a bitterness towards people, towards gods, uh, towards God, uh, and towards what he wants to do, towards his promises. And, and it's that little small ache that before you know it, the pain has spread everywhere. It turns into a resentment towards your reality and, and all the great things that you already have. Discontentment, it poisons our ability to be thankful and appreciative. Have you guys found that to be true? Like, we all know this, Right? Because all we do is get upset with the things that still need to change. So imagine that that you go home today and you just feel inspired by God to bake me a pie because it's Pastor Appreciation Month and God convicts you that you haven't yet, right? I'd understand that if that was the case. That's very normal. And so you say you're going to bake me an Oreo pie and you're watching TV, and you're kind of doing all the recipes and the ingredients, and you, but you're kind of half paying attention because the, the TV's zoning you in, and uh, you're watching reruns of Bridezilla or some ridiculous reality show that we love, and you get so zoned in that you stop paying attention to the recipe, and instead of putting a pinch of salt in the pie, you put an entire cup of salt in the pie, but you don't notice it until after everything's baked, and then you put it out, and you're like, I'm not just going to go and take this to Stephen. I want to sample it. And so you get a little spoon, and you get the whipped cream, and what do you taste? The salt. Even if you did everything else right, the one ingredient you taste is the salt, because salt is so strong and and overpowering that if you put too much in, it, it like trumps all of the other flavors, right? It overpowers the flavor. So you can do the nine other ingredients fine, but if you put too much salt in, that's all you taste. That's how discontentment works in our lives, is it can be the, the overpowering flavor in our lives that it, even if everything else is going fine, that's all we taste. That's all we focus on. That's what keeps us up at night. That's what causes us to be frustrated. That's what causes us to be angry at God, because the one area 
is so strong, and it's that sour discontentment that we can't stop thinking about. So, so what is the remedy? Like, how do we overcome this? What can we do differently? Because I don't think there's anybody in this room that wants that to be their present reality, even if that's something we're truly struggling with. John the Baptist is, is asked a question, and he answers this question even though he's asked another question, which is he's such a, a, he's such a great communicator. And just like Jesus, he knew how to answer the questions they weren't asking. And so John the Baptist uh, is with a crowd, uh, and, and, he's, and he, in the middle of his teaching, he just kind of hops into this. And Luke chapter 3, verse 8, he says this. He says, Prove by the way you live that you've repented of your sins and you've turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we're descendants of Abraham. See, he's speaking to a a group of Jews that felt that they didn't really have to make spiritual decisions because they inherited their Jewish faith from their ancestors. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. What John is saying is, you don't inherit your faith from your parents. So a lot of people, their default when they don't have a faith is to just say what their parents were. Say, oh, I'm, I'm Catholic because your parents are Catholic, or I'm a Christian because your parents are Christian. And what John is very clearly saying is, it doesn't work that way. Like, your faith is your own. Even if your parents have every intention of you adopting their faith, it's ultimately got to be your choice, and it's got to be your decision that you are going to adopt your faith to follow Jesus as your own. Verse 9, even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, and it's ready to sever the roots of the trees. And what he's saying is this, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. So it doesn't matter what you say your heritage is, if you're not living out your faith, and you're not producing good fruit with your life, God can tell. The crowds asked, okay, then what shall we do? They're nervous, they're anxious, they're like, we don't want to be thrown into the fire, what shall we do? John replied, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Which almost feels like a left turn in this conversation. Like, what should we do? And his response, be generous. I imagine it kind of threw people off, like, what? What about all those commands that we've heard about? You're telling us we should start from a place of generosity? Like, what should we do to show our faith? It... And the reason why John says this, it's it's because when you're generous, you have come to a place of contentment that you are focused less on what you don't have and focused more on sharing what you do. That, That you stop yearning for more and instead you're yearning to share more. And that comes, generosity comes from a place of contentment. It comes from a place of satisfaction that God's always gonna take care of you. And I think some of us in this room, we're not just struggling with contentment, we're struggling with greed, and we're holding on tightly to the things that we have, and it's because we aren't finding our satisfaction in God. So we're making all the excuses in the world for why we shouldn't share more, why we shouldn't be generous, why we shouldn't share the food that we have with those who are hungry. It comes from a place of discontentment. It comes from a place of worry, of anxiety, that I've got to hold on to it, because I don't think God's really going to provide for me if I let go of it. Because your satisfaction was never in how much you had. But if you can get to a place that your satisfaction isn't in how much you have, and how much control you have, and how much you make, but your satisfaction is in the fact that God is in the pilot seat and he'll take care of you, there's like a freedom in that. Because 
if you believe that, you're free from the poison and you can focus on helping other people do the same. See, God wants you to have freedom from this. He wants you to have the freedom to live the life that you are designed to live. God doesn't want you to feel enchained or enslaved to the poison of more. And so he's trying to free us from this. The conversation goes on. And other people are hearing this and they're like, they're they're challenging John. In verse 12, they say, even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and they said, teacher, what shall we do? They're saying, what shall we do to live out our faith? He replied, collect no more taxes than the government requires. He's saying, be honest, be generous. Live a life not of greed, but of contentment. Verse 14, what shall we do, asked some soldiers. John replied, don't extort money or make false accusations and be, what's the word? Content, generous with your pay. See, it's not about getting more. It's about doing more with what you already have. Because until we get to that place, we're never going to be content. Until we can get to a a place that we're focused less on, God, I need this to change, and I need you to focus on this. Until we can get to a place where we say, God, thank you for what you've given me. Now I'm going to do everything I can to be obedient and a good steward with what I have right now. If you can get to that place of satisfaction, the poison lowers. Stop spreading. It's about doing more in the situation you're already in. Some of you are never going to be happy because you're never happy with the situation you're already in. You're never happy with your bank account. You're never happy with your job. You're never happy in your relationships because you've bought into this myth that it's never on you. It's always the situations around you and you're the victim. And John turns it around and he says, it starts with your heart. Like, you don't need anything more to be content because it's a perspective thing. Jesus says later on, if you're faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in large ones. But if you're dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. It's just like the people that went bankrupt after they won the lottery. They were horrible with money before. You give them more money, they're going to be horrible with more money. Verse 11, if you're untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you? With the true riches of heaven, if you're not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? In other words, before you ask God for more or for change, be faithful with what you've already been given from him. Show God that you'll be faithful. Show God that you'll be a great steward with what he's already given you. Even if you don't feel like it's enough, prove to him that you'll take care of what he's already given you and then he will entrust you with more. It's just like if you had two kids and one of them kept squandering every dollar you gave them. You're not going to want to entrust them with more because you know it's going to be wasted, right? So be a faithful employee that strives for excellence, even if you want a new job, even if you don't like your job. Be faithful with the job you've already been given. Be a faithful spouse that, that strives to love and serve really well, even if you wish things were different in your spouse. Even if you wish, if, even if you know that, that your, your marriage needs a major reconstruction, be the faithful spouse today. Be a faithful steward with your finances, even if you don't feel you have enough. Be a faithful friend with the people that are in your life, even if you don't feel like you have enough friends. 
be faithful with the ones you do? Like, what if you focused less on what needs to change around you and you focus more on what needs to change inside you? Because that's where satisfaction comes from. It's not the circumstances. And what hurts my heart is that most people live their entire lives never figuring this out. And they're just always discontent. And they drift towards that hedonist mindset instead of finding satisfaction with what God's already done in our hearts, what God's already done in your life, resting in that. So for you, what needs to change in your heart for you to be satisfied with where you are right now? Because if you can accomplish that, you will get to a place that most people never get to. You will get to a place of of freedom from the poison. That's where God wants you to be, and that's where God designs you to be. He doesn't want you to wake up every day and be frustrated. But it's your choice. I think what we often do is we push it off on God and on other people. Some of the most faithful people I know, some of the most content people I know, they have far less than I have. And yet that doesn't affect their contentment because it's about here, not here. So what's the one thing you've told yourself that would make you satisfied if you got it? Let me ask you this. If God gave you that, what would it change about your heart? If God finally gave you the thing you're looking for, wouldn't you just turn around and ask for something else? Maybe that's why God hasn't given it to you yet. Because he's waiting for your heart to change. He's waiting for you to escape the poison. Because he knows, he can give it to you. and He can keep saying yes and he can keep saying yes, but you're never going to escape it. He wants you to escape it. Because that's the better answer. See, this isn't a thing issue, this is a heart issue. So let me give you a prayer that I'm challenging you to pray every morning when you wake up, and it's two sentences so that you can actually remember it. If you want to write it down, you can, but I'll say it a few times because maybe you can just remember it from hearing it. Thank you for what I already have. I'll find satisfaction in you and you alone today. Thank you for what I already have. God, I'll find satisfaction in you and you alone today. God, thank you for what I already have. I will find satisfaction in you and you alone today. Focus less on what you have and more on what you do with what you have. Imagine if you really lived this out. Like imagine if you didn't have to move up the rung of the ladder at your job to be completely satisfied with your life. Like what if you're able to be completely content even if nothing changed? That would be a rare position to be. You would be in the minority of the people that find satisfaction in God's truth, not in their circumstances. And that's the kind of freedom God wants you to be able to have. That's the gift God wants to be able to give you, is contentment in any situation. Let's pray together. God, um, Lord, we all struggle with this. And, And I pray that you just give us the humility to recognize that. And to be honest with ourselves, Lord, I don't want anybody in this room to walk through life constantly frustrated or upset or stir-crazy or discontent, God. I, I want us all to experience the freedom that we can have in you. And God, if there's anybody in this room that's never truly turned from the disobedience in their hearts, from the sin in their lives, from their selfishness towards others and said, God, I'm tired of trying to do this on my own. I want to put you first. 
Lord, I just want to walk them through a prayer that I would pray if I was in that situation. For them to pray in their heart right now. That, dear Lord, I'm a sinner. And I've fallen short. God, will you rescue me out of my brokenness? Will you rescue me out of my disobedience? Will you help me to trust you and put you first? I want to start a new life with you. For anybody that's praying that for the first time today, God, they're on the first step of a spiritual journey. It's the most important step they'll ever take, God. For those of us in this room that have already taken that step, we celebrate with them because we know how significant that is. God, regardless of where we're at in the spiritual journey, I pray that each of us can find satisfaction in you, your truth, what you've already given us, and look outward at who we can help. Free us from the poison, God. I pray this in your name.